Welcome to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. When something positive or negative changes in our lives, we are basically at a fork in the road. Where does the next step take us? What do we do as reactions to something that has already happened? How do we prevent the negative aspects from happening again? Whether in business or personal parts of your life, you can get back on track. We'll talk about it today. Now, here is your host, Frank Zakari. Good morning. My name is Frank Sakari, and you are listening to Life-Altering Events. We're going to start the show off today with a shameless self-promotion. Bear with me, please. My sixth book, which is called The Secret to Walking on Water is to Know Where the Rocks Are, has finally entered into the first phase of editing. Now, this book is a guide for every entrepreneur or anyone who aspires to be an entrepreneur. As you'll see many times throughout the guide, success isn't about working hard or working smarter. It's about, it's not necessarily about what you know that's going to determine your success or failure. It's also about what you don't know. What you know is not nearly as important as who you know. So the secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. Too many of us sink because we don't know what we simply don't know. Now this guide is going to help prepare you for some of the things that I've experienced and other business owners have experienced so that we can eliminate that uncertainty. With any luck, the book will be available in six to eight weeks. We'll see how well the editing goes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today, given the current state of affairs in the world, it is hard to find good news or even accurate news. It's very frustrating. It's depressing as we go through the process of reopening and then reclosing, and then reopening again. But these stories, but there are stories that give us hope. They make us smile. They make us cheer. And they make us cheer for people who, despite all their own hardships and their own heartaches, go out of their way to help, to give to others, and willingly serve their communities. Today we're going to put the gloom and doom aside, and we're going to talk about something very positive. I have two guests today that are going to make you smile. They're going to touch your heart, and they're going to give you hope. Now, both will downplay all the things that they've done because real heroes, and I know they both hate that term, but real heroes never act for personal gain or praise. They, they act because in their heart it's the right thing and the only thing to do. So Harold Mintz and... Dean Eller, have gone, have had more than their share of life-altering events thrust upon them, yet they continue to give. So today we're going to talk about the power of giving. Let me tell you something about my guest today. Harold Mintz has always been a blood donor. He organized the annual blood drive in Virginia for years until his family re relocated to Los Angeles, where he launched a new neighborhood blood drive. In between all these blood drives he coordinates, he commutes to the local Red Cross to donate blood every eight weeks, like clockwork, just because that's what he does. In November, 20, November 2000, Harold became one of the, first, the country's first non-designated living organ donors, offering a kidney to a total stranger. Now, that wasn't done at that time, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Dean Eller, Dean Eller has lived every parent's worst nightmare. He went through the death of his daughter. Now, the majority of us 
will eventually experience the ordeal of burying a parent. However, unless you've experienced it, no one can comprehend the loss of a child. Dean Eller channeled his grief to fulfill a request his daughter gave to him to support blood donations. He oversaw three centers in Fresno, California, one in Visalia, one in Porterville. He's also responsible for all the blood drives and the blood supply for 30 hospitals in Fresno, Madera, Tulare, King, and Mariposa counties. I can't do their stories justice, ladies and gentlemen, so let me bring in my friends Harold and Dean. Gentlemen, welcome to Life Altering Events. Thank you. Good morning. Harold, let me start with you. Give the listeners a, a quick overview of your life and your career because it's, it's so colorful and so enjoyable to listen to. Uh, I laugh every time uh, I find myself sharing my path here. So I spent most of my professional career, I'm 62 right now, I spent most of my career over 30 years in the convention and trade show industry. Uh, If you've ever been to a convention, the companies that I've worked with design and build trade show exhibits. Uh, But about 12 years ago, my best friend from high school uh, called me up uh, and said, hey, want to dangle your toes in Hollywood with me. Uh, You don't know his name, but most people have seen the movies he's directed. Uh, Ace Ventura, Nutty Professor, Liar, Liar, Patch Adams, you know, big, big comedies. And uh, I live in Virginia, and every time he came out with a new movie, movie, he would reach out and say, hey, come out for the red carpet premiere. And so uh, we'd fly cross country and uh, just to see what Hollywood was like, you know, on the front lines. Eventually, he said to me, quit your life, quit that job you've been doing for 30 years, move out here to Malibu with me, and I promise you'll be passionate about what you do every day. Uh, At that point, it sounded fun, so we did. My wife and I sold our home, packed up, and moved to Malibu, California. And for the last 10 years or so, I'd been doing exactly that. They call it producer, which means absolutely nothing, uh, because (laughs) it's it's, it's different for, for everybody, but I've been helping them write scripts and put audiences in seats and all kinds of fun things. Uh, But uh, a few friends reached out and asked me to do favors back in the old industry again. So about two years ago, after playing in Hollywood for 10 years, I went back to the convention and trade show industry. And now I'm talking to you guys. Wow. So you have, you've done it all from the East Coast to the West Coast. Lots of fun. Exclamation point on the fun. That's that's probably a good way to capture it. I've, I've constantly always made decisions in my life. When the road forks in front of me, I can take a left or a right. I always say, which one looks more enjoyable? And believe it or not, donating a kidney uh, did the same thing to me. You can get into it why, but I looked at that as a fun uh, choice, and I was proven correct. Now, Harold... How did you start getting involved with all these blood donors, becoming an active blood donor, and then organizing all these blood blood drives? How did you start that? What what motivated you? Donna Carter. Now you're going to say, who the heck is Donna Carter? Donna Carter was the captain of the cheerleaders when I was in high school. And uh, one day, uh, we had an opportunity to give blood. Well, I've never done that before. I don't want anyone sticking a needle in my arm. Thank you very much. Until I saw that Donna Carter was giving out cupcakes to everybody who (laughs) gave blood that day. You laugh, but I'm telling you, Donna Carter was a serious cheerleader. Uh, And so for the first time, uh, I rolled up my sleeve and and dropped a pint of blood. 
And since then, I realized, wow, that's not so bad. I've just been doing it ever since. And when I got the opportunity to bring blood drives into the places where I worked or my communities that I lived in, it was an easy, easy thing to do. And uh, it's just picked up steam. It's just something that you do naturally now. That's a great story. I, I'm going to draw a blank on the comedian's name, but one of the, the things he says a great deal is, you can get a man to do just about anything if you end it by saying, and then you meet chicks. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're in high school and you're 18, uh, I guess there's an exclamation point after that one as well. <laughs> I guess so. Now, Harold, I read your story and I watched the video regarding your journey to donate a kidney to a complete stranger. Now, at the time, that just wasn't done. It just, it wasn't done. Why was it so important to you? And, and go through all the hoops you had to jump through with this. Yeah, that's a good question. So I've always told people that nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go give out body parts to strangers. It's just not, you know, it, it doesn't happen the way. At least it didn't happen that way for me. <clears throat> the way I can explain it best is uh, you go through life and whether you realize it or not, there's events that take place usually uh insignificant, or at least not life-altering events, uh, small little things that in hindsight, when you look over your shoulder, you can see exactly what series of events led you to someplace. And so for me, I can tell you exactly the 12 milestones in my life that led me there. So uh, the first one, as I've already told you, was a cheerleader. Uh, and But the second really big one and the biggest motivator for me was losing my father uh, at an early age. He passed at the age of 56. Uh, he found out he was sick one day and seven weeks later he passed from uh, complications from various kinds of cancer, which is not unusual. We all go through that. But at the time, uh, it was uh, shocking that it happened so fast. And so what the doctors told us afterwards was uh, there was absolutely nothing they could do to help him. They didn't know how to. But I started hearing and learning about uh, organ donation, specifically kidneys, where if, if you have a loved one who's in need of a kidney and is on death's doorstep, the doctors know exactly what to do to fix them. They go to the shelf, they pull off a O-positive kidney or whatever it is, and they put it in, and all is well in the world. The challenge is, of course, there's just not enough parts on the shelf. And so that not being able to help my dad, they didn't know how to fix them versus knowing exactly what to do but not having enough parts that was a big conflict for me that one i couldn't wrap my arms around and so it led me to start asking questions uh, you got to be careful when you ask questions because you're going to start getting answers sometimes that you don't expect and <laughs> it leads you leads you down a path now there are obviously other steps uh, along the way that led me there my dad didn't pass and i go hey i'm gonna go give a kidney there were there were things. Uh, and I, let me throw in here at this, people that might be listening to this going, gee, that's pretty amazing. I, I, I tell people all the time, I push back. I don't think, as you've already identified in the opening, uh, I don't think what I did is outrageous or uh, that special. Now, I'm not minimizing it. I know certainly how important it was to the woman who received my, my kidney. But what I did and why I did it, I always say, Frank, you would do the same. A lot of people would do the same. If you had had the same life experiences that I had, cheerleaders, dads dying young, you know, meeting people in a shopping mall, there's various things that had you done that, I pretty, I feel very strongly that you would have done the same thing. So it's not uh, hero, 
it's situational. Uh, and to me, that's my favorite part of the story. It doesn't take somebody crazy good to do this. It takes somebody put in a situation that they respond in a way that makes sense. Uh, so I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. Now, when you, as you were going down this path, I read, and we, when we spoke, you said there was a number of people in the medical community who tried to discourage you from doing this. <laughs> did, they give you, did they give you reasons? Yeah, the first one out of the box. Hey, uh, I called, uh, I saw a movie on a plane uh, that at the end of it said, for more information about organ donation, call this number. So eventually I called the number and said, hey, can you send me information? I'm curious about donating. And sure enough, a few days later, I get up a box filled with pamphlets and brochures. And as I go through them, I see that they're all how to donate after you're dead. (laughs) So I'm not dead yet. So I call back and say, thanks, got it. Uh, I'm thinking about donating now uh, 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 to somebody in my neighborhood. And they said, is it a family member or a friend? I said, actually, it's none of the above. I'm just curious about learning to see if somebody uh, who might need it, whether I know them or not, you know, could use it. There was a few seconds of silence, and the lady uh, at the National Kidney uh, Association calls and says, you know, you can't do that. It's illegal. Excuse me? She said, yeah, have you ever heard of something called the waiting list? And I said, yeah, I think so. She says, well, it's run by the government, and the way they keep patients in need of organs on this list is uh, how old you are, how sick you are, how long you've been on the list, and a bunch of other factors. And she said, if you want to give to somebody in your neighborhood, what happens if somebody in Albuquerque is next on the list? It fights current protocols. And so you you can't do that. At least you can't do that today. So I was disappointed, but I, I, I get it. And as she's hanging up, she goes, look, give us your contact information. And if anything ever changes, we'll call you. Right, you're right. <laughs> two, <laughs> two years later, my phone rings. Hey, is this the guy who said he wanted to give his kidney away? I go, whoa, I didn't say I want to do it. I just said I was curious and I had questions. And they told me that the first non-designated uh, kidney donor program had just been established in my own neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And if I wanted, I could come in and ask questions. And that's really, you know, that started the race. That started all the reality kicked in. So you got you got the uh, yes you can you can talk about it. So then when you went in and they explained what the process was, go through that with us if you would, Harold. Yeah. So what do you think the very first medical test they do on you uh, when you raise your hand to donate a, a kidney? It's not pee in a jug, which they took gallons of eventually. It's not give blood to test what type you are. They sent me to a psychiatrist, which <laughs> really which which, crack, which makes sense, right? What kind mm. of a knucklehead wakes up and starts giving away body parts, of, of course. But the very first thing, I laid down on a couch, just like in the movies, and I kind of told the, uh, uh, the psychologist exactly what I told you. Told her about Donna Carter, told her about my dad, and all the other stepping stones. And when I'm done, I'm not sure what you say to a psychiatrist. I said, how did I do as I'm putting my coat on? And she laughed and said, you did great. Now I'd like to see you here next Friday with your wife. Uh-oh. At this point in the story, my wife knows nothing about this conversation. I was literally just curious. You know the end of the story. You know I did it. But then it was just curiosity. So I had to go home that night and tell my wife, hey, guess what I did at work today? <laughs> and so she, uh, she was not on board. She says, what are, you, what are you talking about? What happens if your kid needs it? What happens you know, if you don't wake up from surgery? And I said, look, before you say no, why don't you just go ask questions with me? And sure enough, she went in the next Friday. And right out of the gate, one of the first things psychiatrist asked my wife was, hey, you know, in any surgery, there's risks. Uh, there 
your husband could have complications during surgery, which could result in being left in a permanent vegetative state. And if that were to happen, would you be able to take care of him for the rest of his life? And I'm looking at the psychiatrist going, really? You're going to throw the vegetable question at her right up top? And and my wife, I love her. She goes, uh, look, I don't want to do this. I would not do this. But he's my husband. I know his motivation. Of course, I'd take care of him. Uh, so after we got through, uh, I got a piece of paper that actually says Harold is normal. So that's pretty cool. That's in my scrapbook. <laughs> well, that's a good thing to have. <laughs> it's always good. Uh, but then there was the peeing and bleeding and x-rays and MRIs and poking fingers where you didn't know they were supposed to poke fingers. And uh, at the end of this, uh, I kept telling my wife, don't worry, there's no way I'm going to pass all these tests. There's just no way. Guess who the first person to pass all the tests was? This guy. Mm-hmm. So, and sure enough, as you said, in December of 2000, I was at Georgetown University where they opened me up, took out my left kidney, put it in a beer cooler filled with ice, drove it across the Potomac River and somewhere that I didn't know. I wasn't allowed to know who got it, male, female, young, old, black, white. I just know that I did well. I survived the surgery. I woke up in a great mood, and I've been in a great mood for the last 20 years. That's an amazing story. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a little break here, and we're going to come back and continue with Harold, and then we're going to pivot over to, uh, to Dean Eller. Don't go away. This story gets better and better. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Life Altering Events with Frank Sakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. 
That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We had one just phenomenal segment with Harold Mintz. We're going to continue with him on his being one of the first kidney donors to an unspecified individual, non-named individual. This had not been done prior to uh, he being the first one. Now, one of the first. One of the first one of the ones. First. One of the first mm-hmm. ones. Now, Harold, when you, you just mentioned before the break that you donated the kidney. You came out of the surgery fine. Everything was good. The, the, the kidney was taken across the Potomac River to someone you had no idea who it was, nor at that time did you care who it was, just as long as it could help. Now, the recipient reached out to you. How did that happen? Yeah, so uh, as I'm leaving the hospital, I was only in the hospital a couple days. It's fairly standard surgery. The last thing they said was, you know, if both the donor and the recipient agree, we'll introduce you in a few months once everybody's fully healed. And at the time, I'm thinking, well, sure, that sounds fun. You know, I, it's like reading a book. Why would you not read the last chapter? It, it all made sense. So two months down the line, uh, uh, to me, I, I healed quickly and I felt good. And the phone rings and they say, uh, it's the kidney guys. We're trying to organize that gathering. Uh, uh, how does next Tuesday sound? And I said, I've changed my mind. And I know they were in shock because this is one of the first donations of this kind, and they were probably looking for press. And they said, we respect your decision, but can you tell us why that is? I said, sure. I said, so far, this story is uh, as close to a fairy tale as you can find. You know, once upon a time, cheerleaders, dad passes, donate a kidney, and they all lived happily ever after. It's it's really good. Uh, when you start putting real people and introduce real people, people into the story it can't get better it's not possible it could get worse though and my what i was really concerned with research had told me certainly in the dc area if not uh, the country at large there's a lot of folks on the kidney waiting list that are uh african-american i'm not as a matter of fact uh i'm i'm white i was raised jewish uh and my big concern was and I know it probably wouldn't happen, but what if the person who got my kidney looks at me and goes, "Ew"? <laughs> now, now, you know, they probably wouldn't. They probably wouldn't. But I didn't do this for somebody to give me a hug and say thanks. I did it for you know personal reasons, and so I told them I pass. I, I'd, I'd rather not, <clears throat> and they respected that, disappointed as they were. But a couple days later, uh, they called back and said, "Hey, uh, we just want to pass along a message from the recipient." all she wants to do is say thank you to you and your family. She doesn't want anything. She just wants to say thanks. And uh, at that point, I realized, well, maybe her wishes take precedent over mine. And I agreed. Get this. Two days before we were to meet, uh, I get a call from the kidney uh, organization, and they go, uh, she wants to know what religion you are. Mm. And I almost freaked out going, see? This is exactly why I didn't want to do this. And they said, calm down. It's not, it's not what you think. They want to get you a gift, and they don't want it to be inappropriate. Uh, so they're probably thinking uh, uh, maybe a, a cross necklace or a bracelet. Yeah, who knows? Right. But I said, no, you got to tell them nothing. Thank you very much. Please don't get me anything. Uh, and so I, the day arrives, and I'm walking down this hallway with my wife, my child, and, and my mom. And I know she's already in there. I know I know it's a mom and a, and a woman. That's about all I knew. Uh, and 
the door opens up, and just like in the movies, uh, there's TV cameras and mm. cameras flashing, and uh, and all of a sudden, all that kind of disappears, and I see this tiny black woman carrying a bouquet of flowers and i know that's got to be her so i walk up and i give her a big hug and uh for the next three hours we shared with each other how did how did we end up in this room together how, how did our lives intersect and i'm telling you it's almost humorous you couldn't find two more totally opposite people on every measuring stick you could find physically spiritually religiously i mean every way i'm tall white Jewish. I talk a lot. I talk loudly. She's a tiny Ethiopian woman uh, who barely talks above a whisper, who might be the most serious Christian I've ever met. We're on every grading scale. We're opposite. And yet uh, today she is family as I am to her. Uh, and I, I'm telling you, I tell the story to people. And every time I tell it, it still comes out of my mouth. And, and inside me, I'm going, who does that? What kind of story has that kind of a pathway. But I also will, will say what I told you before, had the events in my life happened to you, I think you might have been on that surgeon's table as well. That's an incredible story. Now, there's a, uh, I found, which I didn't post yet, but I will when we put this on demand, a photograph of Harold and this young woman who received the kidney, and it was a cover story on a magazine. And so when this goes on demand, that picture will be up there. For everyone to see. Now, Harold, you you are often you're asked now to speak a great deal about kidney donations, and you talk to young people, particularly in high school. What do you tell them? Well, it's important uh, to me that years ago uh, I spoke to a class. Uh, usually, high schools around you know where I live, and uh, this one happened to be my local Malibu High School. I spoke to spoke there, and uh, a couple days later. Uh, in my neighborhood, a gentleman uh, walking his dog came up to me and said, hey, are you the kidney guy who spoke at the high school? You know, and my, my chest puffs out a little bit. Yes, that was me. And the guy, for the next three minutes, berated me saying, how dare you tell my daughter to go give a kidney? She came home saying she wanted to do it. She's only 18. I can't believe you would do that. I go, whoa, I, I didn't tell anybody to do that. And so since that since that conversation, I make sure to share with the kids that I speak with, and I've spoke to over 20,000 high schoolers in the last 20 years. I make sure to tell them, I'm not telling you to do this. I think it's kind of nuttied what I did. I would ask you, though, when you get your driver's license next year to consider signing the organ donation checkbox there because that's not saying do what Harold did, you know, while you're alive. That's saying when you're done with your parts, when all is said and done and you've lived your life and it's over then can they, you know, can they have your stuff? Uh, and I don't even want them to say yes to that. I just want them to consider it. You know, when they hear my story, it loosens a jar that they don't, they don't want the driver's license so fast that they cruise by that question without even considering it. I want them to give it thought. Say yes, say no, say whatever you want, but give it thought before you move on to the, to the next question. And I think I've been more than successful. I've heard, I have a file on my desk with over uh, 15 people in it that folks that have reached out to me and said, I read about you, I heard you speak, and since then, I've since donated a kidney. So that's a win. It's tremendous. It's an amazing win. And it's such an inspiring story that, and all of us can do this. It's, it's just it has to touch you, and it has to feel right. Let me tell you a little story about Harold. A very good friend of both Harold and Dean, and, and I both, is uh, Lauren Ward Larson. 
okay? And she turned me on to both Harold and Dean. Lauren said she and Harold are, are at, at a coffee place, I believe is in Malibu, and someone comes up and Boulder, asks, Colorado. Boulder, yes. Colorado, not Malibu. Boulder, Colorado. And a person comes up and s- says they're, they're hungry and asks if, for some, uh, some money for food. Now, without, according to Lauren, without batting an eye, Harold gets up, goes in the store, and buys for the, this, this woman whatever it was that she wanted to, to have. Comes back out. Now, Lauren, you got to know Lauren. Lauren just sort of looks at him, and, and what was your statement you said to her? I have absolutely no idea, Dean. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Tell me I think frankly. what she said, according to Lauren, she looked at you, you looked at her and said, look, I'm not a goody two-shoes. When I look at someone mm-hmm. like that, I see my sister or my mother or a friend. And why wouldn't I get up and help? Yeah, okay, so my arms are tingling a little bit. It's These days, I mean, right now, today, is there anything harder than putting your head on someone else's shoulder and seeing their perspective? Would we ever been more apart from each other as a, as a country? Uh, probably not. Uh, and so I can't fix the world, but when you have a situation in front of you, that becomes real, that becomes uh, something that you can have an actual impact on, whether it's a, a cup of coffee, uh, a sandwich for a meal, or a, a kidney. Uh, it sounds cliche, but that's that's pretty accurate. It is, and it's, it's a wonderful story. Harold, thank you very much. We'll come back to you right at the end. Let me pivot over to Dean Eller. Dean, you lost yes, your daughter, Jenny, I believe she was 21 years old, to leukemia. Um, This is a remarkable woman, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Dean, tell the listeners, tell them who Jenny is and and Jenny's story. Well, uh, of course, you know, I'll be I'll be the proud dad. But uh, Jenny was uh, five foot uh, seven, um, a kind of a dynamo, just a type personality, um, scholar athlete, uh, really kind of had it all going for her. Extremely good looking, if I do say myself. <laughs> and uh, she just was, was the type of person that everybody uh, was her friend. And she just loved everybody. And so she was, she was going a mile a minute every, every day. Um, she was a, a young gal who uh, wanted to go into medicine herself. Um, and she had the grades for it and, and that type of thing. And so she was just a, a phenomenal person, a young Christian girl who, um, like I said, you would just, you would, you would immediately want to be a friend with her, uh, when you, when you met her. So she was kind of a, kind of a cool gal until, um, and all through her life. But then when she was diagnosed with leukemia, uh, it went to a whole new level. And then, um, in 1992, while she was a senior in high school, so she had just turned 18 years old and, uh, she, uh, we had been playing a softball tournament in, down in Southern Cali- uh, down in Southern California, and down there it was a big recruiting uh, weekend. It was a, a large weekend, holiday weekend, and all the major college coaches were down there uh, to look at uh, potential players. And uh, she got a, a, a big bruise uh, on her knee, uh, on her thigh, just above her knee, and. Uh, we didn't think too much of it. It was about the size of a softball. She got hit there with a softball and just huge hematoma. And, uh, 
she continued the tournament, uh, you know, all three days of the tournament. And we came back home, and the next week we decided to go skiing up at China Peak. And uh, we were up at the cabin there, and she came that evening, and she said, Dad, just look at this. And she pulled down the, the back of her pants, and, and there was, you know, all this bruising all across her, her backside. And uh, I said, gosh. But, again, she was kind of a kid that bruised easily anyway as a catcher, so she always had a bruise somewhere. We didn't think too much about it, and then we got back home a couple days later, and we decided to have uh, her uh, her doctor look at it, and uh, or actually her, her my wife worked for a doctor, and uh, so he ordered a blood test, and he got it back, and he was just ashen when he came back in to talk to my wife, and said, uh, "You need to get her in to see an oncologist right away," uh, at which point we did uh, that uh, that visit. Uh, resulted in her immediately getting uh, a couple of transfusions of blood and platelets just to keep her alive, even though she was functioning. She was she was out of blood. I mean, her her blood count was was down. And um, we began there at that point in time a journey uh, that would would uh, last us for the next three or five, uh, three and a half years, the remainder of her life, uh, as uh, she fought a disease. We sat there in the doctor's office that day, and um, he looked at her after getting all the tests. It took a couple of days to get some tests back and a bone marrow biopsy and those types of things. And and then he looked across the desk. She had just turned 18, so she was an adult. So he talked directly to her. And uh, he said, Jenny, he says, um, this leukemia is an aggressive type of leukemia. This leukemia is a killer. And if we don't get a handle on this in the next 30 days, you won't be with us this time next year. And a pretty somber moment for the Eller family at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, But Jenny just took it in stride. And just the way she competed in sports, she she took this, she analyzed it in her brain. You know, as a dad, I'm sitting there freaking out, uh, wanting to know all the facts and figures. And she just put her hand on me and said, Dad, just, just wait. And he gave us all the information, and we got back into my car to go home that day. And he, she, I, she had been silent. She was looking out the passenger side window, and I said, Jenny, so what do you think? What do you think about this um, diagnosis of, of leukemia? And just as cool and collected as you can be, she turned to me, looked me right in the face, and said, Dad, I just don't want you and Mom to be sad. She says, because I'm not sad. Uh, she says, I, I know that God has a plan for me. And if it's this, I'll walk this road. And it was an amazing, amazing thing. I think at that very point in time, uh, Jenny, my 18-year-old daughter, picked me up and put me on her shoulders and then would begin to carry me for the next three and a half years. It was an amazing thing. That's, that was Jenny. That's, that's who Jenny was. The Ladies and gentlemen, there's a number of stories and articles about this, and, uh, and, and I strongly encourage you, and I'll put out links, for you to read this, because this story is, is truly, it will touch your heart. Now, Dean, you weren't, you weren't there when uh, the doctor came in with the ashen look. Uh, did your wife call you at that point and tell you to come down there? What happened? No, um, uh, uh, he basically, she, she basically came home and said, we need to, 
<laughs> you know, we, we need, need to, to talk get, uh, to, uh, yeah, to get to uh, an oncologist, which we did, and our her doctor recommended uh, a, a couple, and we we got a couple different uh, uh, um, opinions on on what was there, but it was all it was all the same result. You know that this this is uh, serious, and and we needed to get going. And, you know, and the thing that I guess it was kind of think about what's going on. So Jennifer here, she's a phenomenal. Uh, softball player. Uh, she's in her senior season, and she's being recruited. That, that tournament that we talked about, she was at in Southern California. She got her first uh, uh, Division One scholarship offer uh, two days after we got back from that tournament, uh, and would get uh, a total of about twelve. Uh, and after that, uh, she was a phenomenal softball player. And so this, this young girl had everything going for her. She was. 18, she was pretty, she was smart, um, she had all those things going for her, yeah, great athlete, and all of a sudden, her world changed, and and the Eller family's world changed in the snap of the fingers. We got this deadly diagnosis, and she handled it with in, in stride, and so did we because of her strength, and that's why I said I think she, I think she carried me for those uh, next three and a half years. And it was phenomenal to watch her uh, in what she did. She was very methodical. She wasn't going to let this keep her down. She didn't want to, you know, not go to school. She didn't. She wanted to get back playing softball. That was what her goal was. And uh, she spent the rest of that school year trying to get back in, get in shape. And she actually did and uh, got into the league championship game, and uh, <laughs> which after being in the hospital for several months, she gets out and uh, steps up to the plate and, and rips, a, rips a double down the line. And it's, it, it was a phenomenal thing. Now imagine. Well, that's incredible. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take another break here. We're going to continue with the story on Jenny Eller from her father, Dean. And don't go away. You, you do not want to miss the rest of the story. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Book Frank Zakari as the motivational speaker at your next event. Frank is a dynamic, entertaining, and fascinating storyteller. Your organization will be entertained and will learn stories of success they can implement immediately. Email Frank today to secure him for your next event at lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com or call 916-718-5517. Mention that you heard about it from the Life Altering Events radio program. You can also visit Frank's website for more information at frankzakari.com. Frank Zakari has written five books spanning a range of life-altering events and how to handle them. When the Wife Cheats is about a man with two young daughters handling the devastating loss of a cheating wife. Inside the Spaghetti Bowl is about how one family stays together through both good and bad. Five Years to Live follows a couple through life after a tragic accident, recovery, and prognosis. From the Ashes is a turnaround management success story about the University of Washington volleyball team. Find the books at Amazon in print, audio, and Kindle formats and at frankzakari.com. Multiple studies show us that the vast majority of people are disengaged at work. 
A Gallup report stated that two-thirds of American workers are unhappy and 15% actually hate their work. That means that 81% are not engaged to work for a common goal. Frank Zakari and his team have programs to help you change this dynamic and create a collaborative and high-performing organization. Visit frankzakari.com to set up an initial consultation today. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Life-Altering Events with Frank Zakari. To call into the program today with questions or comments, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or you can send an email to lifealteringeventsradio at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Gentlemen, today we are focused on the power of giving. We've had two amazing segments, one mainly with Harold Mintz about the power of, of donating organs and blood and the self-fulfillment that he had for doing this just because it's the right thing to do. We've been talking with Dean Eller, who lost his daughter, Jenny, to leukemia, and what an inspiration Jenny was to him and his family, and now your child is going through this deadly disease, and she's the strong one. She's picking you up. It's just a truly heart-rendering story. Now, Dean, I read uh, an article in an interview that you had, in fact, with Lauren Ward-Larson's husband, I believe, and you were Mm -hmm. talking about Jenny was a fierce competitor, fierce competitor, and she was going to play softball, even with this diagnosis. She was going to play. And there was a game, and she was a catcher. And the doctors said, no, you shouldn't do this. Um, tell us that story. Well, he didn't say you shouldn't do this. He says you cannot do this. Ah. Um, she had, uh, it was, again, her senior year, and, and it was basically, it would be her last softball game as a, um, as a high schooler. And the, uh, it was called the city-county all-star game, and it was the best seniors from the city and the county of Fresno. Uh, square off against each other, and it's an annual type type thing. And uh, she said, I'm going to play in that. And the doctor says, no, you can't, because, Jenny, where, you, where your, your, your immune system is gone, um, you're, if, if you get hit in the head because you're of your, where your platelet count is, uh, you will die on the field. All it will take is one hit to the head, and you will die on the field. And uh, she said, okay. And we got up and walked out of the office, and she looked at me. We hadn't been five steps outside that office. And she looked over at me, and she said, Dad, I'm playing in that game. And she didn't have medical clearance, uh, but she did. She went and played in that game. And it was an amazing, amazing thing to to watch her. She played. It's a nine-inning. Softball is normally seven innings. Right. The city-county all-star game, they play uh, seven innings because they want to get all these these are all the best of the best, and so they want to get them all in. And uh, she happened to play all seven, uh, all nine innings, and usually get two or three. Mm-hmm. So she played all nine innings, and there was a play at the plate. And we saw it. There was a, a, a runner on third. A gal hit a long fly ball out to uh, left field, and the runner on third tagged up, and she was going to try for home. The, the left fielder threw the ball 
uh, to Jenny. It was coming in. We could watch it. It was like slow motion to me. I could see it. I, Jenny, I said, just leave your helmet on, please. Leave your helmet on. And she, just like every good kid, she threw her helmet off Ooh. and waited for that ball to come. And the ball and the, and the uh, player got there at the same time. As she's sliding into home, Jennifer grabs the ball and, and just cradles it and lets the gal run directly into her at the plate. Well, uh, there's a great picture of that, of that, of that play of the umpire calling the girl out. Jenny gets, gets back up at the end. And remember, she, her hair is almost gone because of the chemo. Mm-hmm. And she gets up and she spikes the ball as if you're not going to do that. Jennifer is a fierce competitor. Home plate was her, her, her area. You did not steal home on Jennifer Eller. And it was a, it was a cool thing to watch. And, uh, they went on to win the game. Uh, that saved the winning run. That, that saved the, the, the one that would have uh, won the game. And uh, she was uh, voted most inspirational player. Now, as that ball is coming home, Dean, and this is your, your daughter, and you can see yep. this is happening, what were your emotions watching it? You could see it coming. Yep. It, the, it, it, was, it was, I said, that's why I was saying just, oh, please, please leave your helmet on because I don't want you to get hit in the head. Well, she didn't get hit in the head. But I, my wife was next to me on one side. Uh, one of my pastors was on the other side of me, and I was just clutching his arm as, as that gal slid into home, uh, knowing that she needed uh, somebody like Harold at the time. She needed blood at that very moment. And, uh, and her doctor uh, saw the photo of that picture. It was on the front page of the Fresno Bee the, the next day. And so he saw that, and we had to be in the next day because Jennifer needed both blood and platelets on that Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was furious. And it was an amazing thing because he was giving her, reading her the riot act, and she just looked at him. And remember, she's 18 years old. She just held out her hand, and she said, Dr. Shore, stop. And he stopped mid-sentence. You know, doctor didn't kind of like that, but she goes, she goes, stop. She says, you've already given me a death sentence. So while I'm here, I'm going to live. And he never said another word for the next three years. Whatever she wanted to do, she did. Wow. It was amazing. Just amazing. That's the kind of strength she had. Wow. Now, Jenny and then w- she began her... Yeah, go ahead. Jenny was determined. She was going to fight this. Not only was she going to fight this, she was going to win this in all the articles yep. I read. And I know this is difficult, but share with, with the listeners the strength and the talks and, and what she did for the, for the Blood Foundation during this three-year window. Yeah. You know, the, 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 um, uh, the com- communications director of the blood center at that time uh, saw her article. Now, Jennifer was, uh, I wouldn't say famous, but in you know, a community like Fresno, a very good softball player, it ha- has a lot of notoriety. And so she was really well known. And so this, this director called her and said, um, we want you to um, help us by speaking uh, for the blood center. Which she, which she did, um, and she, she uh, for the next three and a half years, she was kind of their spokesperson, did their commercials and that type of thing. People recognized Jenny, and so she was just a, a, a person who brought in a lot of blood donors because of her, sto- of her story. And uh, so she did, and so 
she be, she she went up. Uh, they asked her to speak in front of the annual appreciation luncheon for blood donors, and this was about eight hundred people. Well, Jennifer, eighteen year old, had never spoken before uh, to a large audience, but she says, "Okay, I will." So she walked up there that day after they introduced her, and uh, you know how long the Gettysburg Address is? It's it's it's, it's pretty short, right? Well, Jennifer's speech uh, beat, beat the Gettysburg Address hands down because she walked up to the podium that day, still kind of nervous, but she walked up, remember, bald-headed, has a little girl's cap over her head, uh, hide her bald head, that long, flowing black dress. She walks up to the podium. She sticks out her hands as if she were going to embrace the entire audience. And she says the six most powerful words that you will ever hear, uh, that a blood donor could ever hear in their life. And she said, thank you for letting me live. Six words, powerful words. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. And she walked away from the podium. That was her speech. And it was silent, just silence. Afterwards, after that speech, I can't tell you probably half of those 800 people came up and just wanted to, to say hi to her and say thank you because it brought to them a perspective that they hadn't really thought about, that when they gave blood, that they were going to do one of a couple things. They were either going to save somebody's life or they were going to help prolong somebody's life like they did Jenny's. Jenny, see, you, uh, she, all of her blood counts, the chemo they gave her was so strong that her body would not make blood. It would never make blood again. It was so strong, it wiped out her blood's ability when she went through a marrow transplant. She would never, ever make blood again. So she would have to be dependent upon blood donors the rest of her life. She got two to three uh, transfusions every week for the next three years of her life until she finally passed away. But that... Those words told those blood donors, I know what I'm doing when I go give blood now. Absolutely. Now, you carried on after Jenny passed as uh, a spokesman, and then you left your very successful mortgage banking career to volunteer, and then you took over this foundation. Tell us that story. Well, um, Jenny, the night she died, about an hour before she died, we were still communicating. And um, and anyway, I told her, we knew she was going to die. She knew she was going to die. I told her that I would carry on her work. I didn't know what that meant, but Jennifer was very passionate about blood donation. And so I knew that I would, I would volunteer at the blood center. And so after she died, uh, in fact, uh, three days after she died, I gave my first speech on behalf of the blood center. Uh, speaking in Jennifer's place, she was scheduled to speak at. And I gave her testimony. And during that um, during that time, I really I really got my own passion. So I gave I I, I found Jennifer's passion uh, the night she died. She passed it on to me, and from that point on, I uh, I I took over and became the chief spokesman for the blood center until four years later uh, the position of. Uh, CEO became available, and I applied, and they hired me. Wow, what a story. The 
Frank, can I jump in here real please, quick? Just please, for a second? please. Uh, you know, just listening uh, to Dean share his story, it reminds me of something that's obvious that stories like Jenny's uh, remind us that we're not talking about statistics here. How many people give, how many people are waiting for, how many people need. It turns it from statistics into a personal person, people story. I mean, who the hell wants to talk about blood? Nobody does that unless they have to. Nobody talks about organ donation unless they're in need. So it's it's stories like Dean's that, that get people to stop for a moment, hear it, and then, you know, let it sink in. Now, you didn't wake up this morning think you're going to be talking about blood or kidneys, but if you're if you've sat through the last hour or so listening to these stories, it just moves it from a theoretical statistic to a personal uh, story, and I couldn't appreciate that more. Absolutely. Yeah. Dean, yeah. add on to that, Dean. Well, and, you know, so I became the CEO, and um, over the next uh, several years, I knew that I knew immediately as a businessman myself, after being a career mortgage banker, uh, that we needed a new center. So we built a new center, uh, about a $20 million facility that was uh, built in, in less than a year. And uh, it was dedicated, and the board of directors surprised my wife and I and named it after Jennifer. So the Jenny Eller Donor Center uh, sits out here. It's a state-of-the-art facility, $20 million facility, completely paid for by the day we moved into it. And uh, it was dedicated back to the community. <clears throat> that is the uh, power an 18-year-old girl is going to have on society uh, if if they're willing. I, I, uh, it is very moving, even to me. I'm sitting here in the studio by myself, almost in tears, listening. But those six words, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for letting me live as Harold said, you can't get any more personal than that. Think about this. We are just about out of time. Uh, Harold, any last words you'd like to say? Uh, go find a, an opportunity to, to make yourself feel better. You know, people talk about selfless. Harold did something selfless, and I always laugh a little bit going, you have no idea how much I get out of uh, sharing my story with with people it's close to selfish they're they're related selfish and selfish uh but i can i can tell you uh signing your driver's license or at least considering signing your driver's license uh will help uh somebody uh and possibly many people down the road so please consider it dean any last word yeah i would say uh you know remember those those six words because you are either going to save somebody's life or you're going to help prolong somebody's life like you did jenny's even if a person only lives for an hour in the emergency room while they're getting blood, you've done that family such a great service. They have an hour to tell their, their loved one goodbye and vice versa. It's important that all people give blood. You can give blood every eight weeks. I encourage you to do so. I've, uh, I'm on my 16th gallon right now that I've given. And uh, I just encourage people to do it. That is amazing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as I mentioned, we're just about out of time. If you are not inspired by these two gentlemen, get up, go do something. Sign an organ transplant, sign up and donate some blood. Every one of us has the ability to save or extend a life. As Jenny Eller, her words will resonate with me forever. Now, if you'd like any more information about my guests, you can contact me. I'll make sure it gets to them. We will post this and on demand with some photos later today, about 2 o'clock California time. 
If you missed any of this show, you can hear it on demand at any number of places, including iHeartRadio, um, and now Google and Alexa or my, my website, franksakari.com. Let me leave you with this, ladies and gentlemen. None of us are in this alone, and the secret to walking on water is to know where the rocks are. And today, Harold and Dean showed us where many of those rocks are. Join me next week, and we'll discuss another life-altering event. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Life-Altering Events. Be sure to join Frank Zakari again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a life-changing week. The Good Kind.